Hi, I'm Ben Rizzuto, wealth strategist at Janice Henderson Investors. Is a brighter future possible? At Janice Henderson, we think it is. For 90 years, we've worked to help clients achieve superior financial outcomes and fulfill our purpose of investing in a brighter future together. We know that this means our thinking and our investments are helping to shape millions of futures. At Janice Henderson, we are committed to helping you invest in a brighter future for the next 90 years and beyond. To learn more, go to JaniceHenderson.com. I'm Scott Wapner, and you're listening to CNBC's Halftime Report, the podcast, the most profitable hour of the trading day. We record this live weekdays at 12 Eastern. Listen in. Welcome to the Halftime Report. I'm Scott Wapner, front and center this hour. The great debate is the Nasdaq has its worst day in more than a month. Is tech too toppy? That is the question. Is yet another notable name files to sell shares? We'll debate it with the investment committee. Joining me for the hour today, Liz Young, Surat Sethi, Jim Labenthal, and Steve Weiss. Everybody's around the table here at Post 9. Let's check the markets. We are red across the board. It is the Nasdaq we're going to zero in on. Liz, it's the worst day since October 26th. And now you have another big name seller of mega cap tech. Mark Zuckerberg filing to sell $185 million of MetaShares in November. That is the first time in a couple of years. This follows Bezos, remember, Mm -hmm. selling millions of Amazon shares November 15th and the 16th. That was $240 million. NVIDIA insiders selling or filing to sell. That according to Bloomberg. So is tech too toppy? Well, maybe they have big purchases to make. I I mean, we don't really know what the motivation is. They want to take some gains. I've thought that tech was toppy all year. So I think the answer to that for me right now is yes, but I'm not going to ignore the fact that the market has been strong and that this rally has been almost unrelenting. So we're at a time where I think you don't necessarily fight it. It probably exhausts itself. I don't know that today is the beginning of that exhaustion. But as rates have come down, it's given a lot of steam to this rally. It's given a lot of steam to growth stocks. And that may continue as we sit in this I don't know period between are we going to have more contraction in the economy? Are we going to see a time when rate cuts come closer into view? They continue to come closer into view. But are rate cuts going to actually cause a problem, which honestly is usually the case? Why should you own Meta and Amazon? Um, it is notable that Zuckerberg selling for the first time in two years. The Bezos number, which was reported, was $240 million, though Faber reported at the time that it could end up being a lot more than that. It just raises the issue with the NVIDIA thing, too, because NVIDIA is up 209% year-to-date. Meta's up 162. Now, Amazon's up 71. So those are the three best-performing of the mega-cap names yep. year-to-date. And it just makes us wonder whether these stocks have gotten too toppy, whether they're too rich, their valuations are dramatically ahead of not only the equal weight S&P, but the S&P 500 itself. How would you address that? Well, you do have to sit up and take notice when they sell it. And then you go and look. And I went and I looked at, uh, at Zuckerberg's holdings today. It's a pimple. It's really nothing. He's got so much more stock there that you can't blame them. You never know why they're selling. They're, he's actually uh, very charitable has a big foundation. So maybe he's doing that to fund the family. I don't know. But it is something you think about. Stocks have had huge runs. I really don't care what they've done versus the market. All I care is what are the fundamentals and what, what is the valuation. Now, when I take a look at, at what the valuations 
on Microsoft, you can make the case that's a little stretched. However, in what is likely a disinflationary environment, mm -hmm. in a company that's growing top line where they are and bottom line at greater than 20%, then what do you pay for that? So I have the choice, and Srot and I were talking about this. Because you both own those two stocks. Right. So do I sell it and pay taxes knowing that I believe that they've got lots more products to occur? Unless I think there's going to be a major correction, the stock's permanently broken? Or do I hold on to it whether the volatility? I've decided to hold on whether the volatility. Sometimes I do sell calls against it. Sometimes I do buy puts. But overall, I like it long term as I do Meta. Meta is not as expensive, but it's had a nice move in its valuation. Mm -hmm. Also, they're growing nicely. So, look, if Zuckerberg came out and sold all of it and retired, that'd be one thing. But that's not the case. You know, Surat, Meta's valuation, its forward PE is 24 times. Amazon's 49 times. It's the richest of the group. Now, traditionally, it's been by far the richest of the group. So it's not some new phenomenon that Amazon is trading at 49 times where the overall S&P 500 is at 19 or the equal weight is at 15. Nonetheless, there are those such as John Rogers, the famed value investor who told me down in DC last week that he thinks mega cap stocks are primed to pull back. Yeah, and look, they are primed to pull back, but you also get diversification, and that's kind of what we always talk about is, you know, Zuckerberg at some point said, hey, I've got too much of this. I didn't sell when the stock was more than half of where it is. So we look at it the same way. When the stock becomes too big over your portfolio and you've had a great run, there are other opportunities to deploy it. Now, that, that's the question, and I think it's the right thing to do, and we've been doing it all year long, all year long and been wrong. But I mean, you just, you just said, yeah, they're primed to pull back. I mean, do you think mega cap tech is about to have a, a pullback and there's going to be a rotation into other areas of the market like has been going on for the month of November? Yes, and I've been talking and I've been wrong for 11 months on that. <laughs> so, yes, and I, I still feel that way because people are too concentrated in some of these stocks, whether it's professional investors or individuals. And there are other opportunities. And especially when you see, hey, maybe we have a little bit of a green light on the economy now, which we didn't really see three or four months ago. There are opportunities or just taking profits off the table. Jimmy, you got NVIDIA, which Barron's, by the way, says it's still undervalued. That was a cover story. Now, uh, you know, there are those who are going to say, well, that's the, the cover jinx, right? <laughs> Once you make the cover, then the arrows start, start to come out. Yeah. But what about this issue when you see a Zuckerberg or a Bezos? Now, this is not Jensen Wong. These are said to be insiders yeah. of NVIDIA filing to sell or have sold 370 million NVIDIA shares last month, $180 million worth. Yeah, to most investors, insider sales are, that's an ambiguous signal. It can mean something bad, but it, it's usually what everybody's saying here. There can be estate planning, philanthropic issues. There can be a lot of reasons why they could be selling. Insider buying is a clear positive signal. That's not what we're talking about here. Why isn't um, insider selling viewed the same way? If inside, we're talking about insider buying, everybody would be all giddy saying, yep, see, they think their stock is cheap. We wouldn't be discussing a lot of the reasons why. This is all speculation, which, of course, it is. I totally get that. But we would frame it differently if this was insider buying. If Jamie Dimon was buying J.P. Morgan shares today, we'd be like, well, oh my gosh, that's a bullish signal for the whole market. He obviously thinks J.P. Morgan's cheap. Why aren't we saying the same thing? Because I don't think there's any other reason than being bullish on your stock for an insider to purchase stock. In terms of there are other reasons for an insider to sell, and we've just gone through them. I won't repeat them again. It could be, Scott. It could be that they're uh, you know, maybe, maybe lukewarm on, on the path ahead. By the way, if they had some sort of inside knowledge that something bad was coming down the pike, they would be ill 
ill-advised to sell. You think right? these stocks are undervalued, such as your NVIDIA, as Barron's would suggest yes. today? Yeah, so some of them. And let's distinguish. You know, Amazon, saying it's the most highly valued, they could pull some levers. No, I'm talking about NVIDIA yeah. specifically, so NVIDIA. that's the one Yes, you I own. do. Yes, I do. And here's why. 25 times forward earnings. Uh, you know, you look at the growth rate in earnings per share. I, I think it's, you know, projected around 40% going forward. Uh, my favorite ratio as a value investor is price to earnings to growth, or the PEG ratio. That gives you a PEG ratio below one for a stock that is, I mean, just has major growth drivers ahead of it. There is one rub against NVIDIA, which is that some people say, well, is there over-ordering? Is this a cycle that's going to top out? Let me just address that by saying, of course this is a cyclical stock, but where we are in the cycle for AI chips and all the other applications that they have leads me to believe that the top of that cycle is way out there. So I'm really not worried about the valuation, and to the point, I think it is cheap. I've said that before. I mean, so is Gerstner, who was here last week, said it's not, I think he even said these words, it's not rocket science as, as why these stocks, Weiss, have done what they've done. Mm-hmm. This is where, you know, if you look at where the growth rates have been over the last 10 years, for example, and where they're projected to be over the next by virtue of the AI revolution, then there's no problem with the valuations that I, I read to you on these stocks, whether it's Amazon at the top at 49 or Alphabet at the bottom at 22. All on the list richer than the greater market, but nonetheless justified according to some. Yeah, and, and look, as I said last week, uh, estimates are that it takes 20 times as much power to do an AI search as a Google search. And think of what that means also when you look at the computing power needed, when you look at the data that's going to be needed, and that's going to drive more growth in the cloud. So all those companies are extremely well positioned, plus then you've got the additional products that will be coming out, and then you've got the ad models. There's really no alternative at this point to advertising on Google so uh, and Meta. So, uh, you know, Amazon's getting to the business and their business is actually growing leaps and bounds. But overall, when you look for growth, sure, sometimes the growth, the pr- stock price gets ahead of the growth and ahead of the valuation. You just handle the volatility and you don't watch it every day. I don't know. Dan Ives, put it away. Dan Ives, Liz, puts a note out today that, you know, he had already called this the start of the new bull market. And he says tech's going to be up 20% plus over the next year. Um, because AI spending is, in his words, a tidal wave. Well, he's calling it a new bull market in tech. I don't think he's calling it no, a new tech. bull market entirely. In tech. New bull market in tech. Well, I don't think it can necessarily be new. It's been going on for about a year, right? So it, it's well, probably you're gonna not get a, If you're going to get another 20%, though, that's that's pretty that major. Would be a, that would be a big doubling in the bull market. I mean, that's a lot. It's so, a double okay, down. Here's the thing. Look at the whole market. We've got a spread. The best sector in the S&P is tech, right, at 55% year-to-date up. The worst sector in the S&P is, is Utes at down about 8%. That spread is humongous. This big of a spread, these bifurcated markets don't usually end in a painless fashion. So does that mean that it's more likely that the the top performers have to give a little back? I think that the answer to that is yes. I do think that the top performers are going to have to give some back. That doesn't mean that utilities are going to come and be the top performer in 2024, but to say new bull market in a time when we're not sure what's going to happen with the economy and a time when, yes, this has been really fueled by rate cut expectations. Almost every week or two, we pull that cut expectation forward another month. You think we're it's really been fueled March. by rate cut expectations or just inflation dropping expectations, Both. which has pulled Those down rates? 
but the, those are right. It's it, they're not mutually exclusive. Inflation has come down. Rate cuts then have been pulled forward. I've, I've talked about this a couple times on the show. The period of time between the last hike and the first cut, markets can usually hold up pretty well. That is exactly where I think the market believes we are. When you near that first cut is when things get dicey. That cut continues to come closer and closer into view. So I think there's going to be nervousness as we get into 2024 if that cut is expected to still be in March. So you're absolutely right. That correlation of interest rates and then also where we are with inflation is so high now. When you see that come down, the sectors like just utilities and REITs that have been really hurt are both rebounding. And you look at companies within utilities like an AES or an Edison, right? They've just been crushed within the REITs, American Tower. What happens is when if yields are coming down, people want to buy the American Towers because you're already built in with rate increases. It wasn't doing well because if inflation kept on increasing, you were not keeping up with inflation on, on purchasing power. So I think you see that transition. You see capital flowing to saying, hey, these stocks are undervalued. I could get a I could get more opportunity here, especially if I don't have that going forward. You know, somebody else who's been selling uh, Meta is Stephanie Link, who's been in that stock a while and has been trimming it repeatedly over the last, I don't know, six to eight months. She joins us now from Hightower on the phone. So you trimmed the most hey, of your Meta position, Hi, Steph, last week. Now we've got this word that Zuckerberg's been selling. And again, it's all speculation as to, to reasoning. So we're not going to suggest anything on, on that end. But nonetheless, it's impossible to look at that. You've been selling stocks up a ton. Are these stocks a little toppy? Well, I think I think they are for the short term. For the long term, I think they're all still great stories with great total addressable markets. But Meta's up 162% year-to-date, up 155% in the past year. It's totally re-rated from 13 times forward estimates to 22 times. Now, I mean, total revenue is still going to grow in the mid-20s, so it's not really, really egregiously expensive. It's just had a really great move. It's very overcrowded. With that said, Scott, I think today's reaction to Zuckerberg selling, is it, it is overdone. He sold $185 million. He owns 13% of the, of the shares outstanding, and $117 billion of his net worth is tied directly to the stock. So I don't really read this into much. Executives sell for a lot of different reasons. They usually only buy for one. So I always watch when they're buying versus when they're selling. That being said, I just feel like it's, it's prudent to take profits. Um, I think most of the reaction that's happening today is really more about this rotation out of FANG into tech laggards, into other sectors. You see it with the Russell 1000 growth. Index is down 130 basis points today. The Russell 1000 value is down 15 basis points. So I think it's really more rotation, but I, I have to take profits when I'm up triple digits in a stock. We had a conversation. I think it was on Friday with Adam Parker, Steph, yeah. and, and of this broadening of the rally, he says in a note today, some investors feel encouraged by that and believe that's a proxy for better things to come. I think you'd probably fall into that category. He says he's not convinced. So it, it speaks to the very point in which we're discussing here. Yeah, well, I think there are a lot of portfolio managers that are underperforming um, this year relative to the benchmark. It's impossible this year to keep up with just the Magnificent Seven. I don't think it's prudent to have your entire portfolio in the, in the Magnificent Seven. And I think the 493 stocks that have lagged, a lot of them have not, not all of them, but a lot of them have lagged. I think there's definitely opportunity. And so, yeah, I think between now and the end of the year, we talked about it. I'm actually getting more aggressive. We're going to talk about a whole bunch of buys that I did last week. and. To 
today, tomorrow when I'm on the show, but I think that the valuations for some of these other stocks and sectors is really much more attractive at this point, especially into the end of the year where you're going to see portfolio managers chase, and I think they're going to chase. Um, they're going to sell some of their winners to buy some of these laggards, and uh, we'll see if it continues in the new year, but that's what I'm banking on. All right. We'll look forward to seeing you tomorrow, and you'll tell us those names then. Steph, thanks so much. I appreciate thanks. that. Thanks, Scott. Uh, that's Stephanie Link. Um, so, Jimmy, you got Ed Yardeni today saying it's starting to look a lot like a Santa Claus rally. Maybe that's what November had, had ignited um, on you know, lower oil, lower gas, subsiding inflation. The bond market is, is finally rallying. Yields are, are coming down. It's almost, you know, it's almost been an everything rally, right? Uh, Bonds have been rallying. Stocks have been rallying, except for oil. Gold's been rallying. Bitcoin's been rallying. What do we make of that? Uh, yeah, it's a broadening of the rally, which I do think is healthy. And you look at the uh, equal weight S&P 500 as an indication of that, uh, you know, which is doing almost flat today as the S&P is off almost six-tenths of a percent. Um, you know, the one thing when I think about Ed Yardeni, he's a great economist, and uh, he thinks about some of the more esoteric things that may not matter on the day they're released, but they do matter in the big picture. So this week on Wednesday, I think it is, we're going to get an update on productivity. And to all of us who are long-term bulls, what we've been saying all along is that you can get the wage growth that we've been seeing, roughly four-odd percent year over year, and have inflation come down if productivity picks up. Productivity is kind of one of these wonky things that's kind of hard to talk about. But um, I, I think I can speak for Ed because I speak to him enough to say that on Wednesday, he's going to be paying close attention to that. We're going to get the labor report. You know, all of these things are going to solidify or debunk the idea that we're going to have a soft landing. So the data is going to pick up this week and certainly in the next week's Fed meeting in a way that it hasn't for the last two weeks. It's been kind of dull the last two weeks. Weiss, how do you play this quote-unquote everything rally? Like what, what, what should somebody look at their portfolio and say, you know what, all of these areas now, you know, maybe, you know, maybe the bond rally is sustainable if I think mm -hmm. Yields are going to come down. You've made the argument bonds and stocks can go up together. But now we've got Bitcoin rallying a lot and yep. gold's above, what, you know, 2100. Some are suggesting that that's just getting going as well. Yeah, and, and I've been adding to Bitcoin. So that's, that's just been a great momentum trade. And again, I don't believe there are any fundamentals there. I just believe in momentum. Look, the, the, the question is, is it sustainable? We had an economic data release come out today. It shows the economy is weakening. It was a little disappointing. So if you take a look, and I'm looking to the, at the one-month, three-month performance, I mean, it's pretty outstanding. You know, materials are up 9% in the last month. Industrials up 10%. Uh, consumer discretionary 13% and on and on and on. Hey, ARC just had its, just to broaden it even right. further, into areas that are really, ARC had its best month ever. It did, it did. The innovation well, fund. Yeah, but I, I still wouldn't buy it. Uh, you know, I'd rather buy the Qs because if you look at the long-term performance, the Qs are a better bet, much safer bet, and they're going to outperform ARC as they have. But how, give but, me the breakdown. But the, but the breakdown for me is that you can trade them, but I just don't think the industrials or the economically sensitive stocks are going to do well until there's really light at the end of the tunnel for Fed easing. Because I believe that they're going to have to cut earnings estimates going forward, guidance next year in January. You'll see it. And so that's why I'm staying away from it. I mean, Surat Krinsky, BTIG, laggards are working for now, not without warning signs. Barclays, we remain skeptical that the pace of disinflation can be uh, sustained. So, I mean, there are those. That's kind of like what, what Liz is saying, that, you know, yes, you've had a nice drop in inflation, but let's see, let's see more, more signs of it. 
that there's staying power to this broadening of the rally. Yeah, and I'm in that camp where I, I, do, I don't think rates are going to go back to where they were five years ago or even three years ago. So you want to be in companies that are going to do... Well, obviously, we think they're going to go to zero again. Well, some people think they're going back to two. I don't <laughs> think they're going back to two. I mean, so, so some, of the, some of the areas of the market are reacting as we're going there. So you want to be in areas... I mean, I like the free ports of the world because you're going to get pricing power. You're going to own companies that are going to do well in the 3-4% environment. And if they go lower, I hope it's going for the right reason and not because the economy is so slow. You like your Uber? I do. Um, which is our chart of the day today for obvious reasons. I mean, it's being added to the S&P 500. You have to believe that some of this was in the stock already, wasn't it? I, I, I'm surprised that it's up 5% because it's been talked about so often as to it's going to go in. I think what happens is Uber becomes a momentum stock. We talked about that when once they became, they have the catalyst for, for cash flow. I do think they have a couple more catalysts. They have a freight business that potentially they could be getting out of. Uh, but I think it's a positive. They have, they're incrementally making more cash flow, and they're going to do some capital allocation that's going to be favorable for the stock. Weiss, this is yours too. Reiterated outperform at Api today. Price target to yeah. 75 from 65. Quote, following the inclusion in the S&P. We expect Uber to lean into growth and share buybacks, which should increase investor sentiment for growth return in 2024. Yeah, and I actually, I was telling Surat, I did buy some Friday afternoon on the inclusion to the S&P. I did think it was fully discounted stock, but I also didn't think I had any downside in doing that. I already sold that, uh, what I bought in Friday afternoon, sold the core position. Listen, you know, to me, the market going forward is binary over the next week because jobs number is going to be one key event. Then Tuesday and Wednesday, you have inflation, CPI and PPI. So if those numbers are good, we'll rally into, into the end of the year. If they're not, then you sort of got to run for cover a little well, bit. Well, you got to get through the, you know, the Fed meeting. Right, most, right, right. Most don't expect anything to happen. But right. to Liz's point at the top of the show, what the market has moved forward, these rate cuts. Yeah. What's well, going to be really interesting to listen to the chairman at the news conference. Without a doubt. And I think you do get a, a, a roadmap as well in, in this particular we meeting. We got a preview, the, though, last week of what he was going to say. He's going to hold the line, and he's going to message that, hey, we're probably done. So it's going to be consistent. I don't think anything Let's see where the outlook happen. is, too. Well, yeah. but, but also, to the point you were just making about economic data, we're just going to start getting November's data. October, we know, was kind of lousy, right? There was right. a lot going on. I mean, we know the Middle East and other things. But uh, before the Fed speech, we're going to get CPI and PPI. We're going to get, as you pointed out at the end of this week, the labor report. And that could guide a, a little bit on the edges. No, what he says. will. On Friday, on Friday, he was pushing back. He was mm -hmm. saying, guys, don't get ahead of yourselves. But let's just see how that data comes well, in. Well, he can't be happy with what bonds have done. Right. He doesn't want to see bonds rally like this because that makes his job tougher. We had no, but he also doesn't want to lose control of the bond market like they were in jeopardy of almost doing when rates were sort of get, getting a little bit of a away. Right. Right. right? But, but when you take a, I forget what the you know what the term what the length was, but November saw the largest monetary easing that we've seen in years and years, which is not where the Fed's position is. So he's got to talk that back to being a tighter environment, because it's not that way. Look, just to be clear, I, if, if I didn't own, if Stephanie, I agree with her position, take profits, I'm concerned about taxes personally, you know, and for the portfolio. So if I didn't have to worry about taxes, yeah, maybe I think that you're sort of in balance here in the market. And if those numbers kick in, then you could rally. If they don't kick in, it's going to be binary. Real quick. Somebody has to do the job to tighten financial conditions. The market had been doing the Fed's job for it, so they sort of backed off. We started to bake in the idea they were done. They'd cut. 
the market now is easing, so the Fed has to come back in and do the job. Yeah, but financial conditions are still that. tight. I mean, they've been the, the speakers in the last week have have said it. Just because you know yields have come down from five percent to four twenty-five, or wherever the ten-year is at this very moment, the four twenty-nine. Doesn't mean that financial conditions overall are all of a sudden loose. But they've loosened. And it's from that really high base, that really tight base, that they've fallen from there and they've fallen pretty rapidly. That then you see this increase in liquidity come back. Now the market is doing that for them. And that's not the place that they want to be, to Steve's point, when, yes, inflation is down, but it's not done, right? It's not at target. We're not done with it. The last thing they need is a resurgence, especially after we've had pretty good holiday shopping numbers mm -hmm. so far. So th he's still going to push back. I right. still think he's going to push back. Okay, let's grab a break. We'll come back. We'll do our calls of the day, including a consumer stock Barron says could rally more than 10% from here. Surratt owns it. We'll debate it. We're back right after this. Old Dominion Freight Line was built on keeping promises. With an industry-leading on-time delivery record and low claims rate, we keep promises better than any other LTL freight carrier because we treat every shipment like it's our most important one which means we do the little things right so that we can keep our promises and you can keep yours too. That's what drives us. To learn how OD can help your business keep its promises, visit odfl.com. Old Dominion, helping the world keep promises. B2B selling is tougher than ever, and we feel your pain. If you're struggling to close deals, consider giving LinkedIn Sales Navigator a shot. This sales intelligence platform helps professionals like you engage high-value customers, drive higher revenue, and increase sales performance. Sales Navigator also guides you in targeting the right buyers, highlights key signals such as job changes or which accounts you should prioritize, and uncovers hidden hot prospects so you can find those buyers that are most likely to convert. Fueled by LinkedIn's 1 billion member platform, Sales Navigator gives you the most up-to-date first-party data, enabling you to unlock conversations with the people that matter. Right now, you can try LinkedIn Sales Navigator and get a 60-day free trial at linkedin.com slash halftime report. That is linkedin.com slash halftime report for a 60-day free trial. Let LinkedIn Sales Navigator help you sell like a superstar today. Just go to linkedin.com slash halftime report and get started. All right, welcome back. Let's do our calls of the day. We're going to start with Barron's on Pepsi. Uh, they say, Surat, that your stock could climb 12% or more. Growth appears ready to reaccelerate. Profit margins should also expand. What do we think here? You've owned this for a long time, right? I have. I have. And, and it's it's part of a diversified portfolio. I know Weiss is going to jump on me on this one, but I'll tell you why I own it, especially going forward now. Volatility of earnings is much less compared to the rest of the market. You know you have earnings growth baked in because they've been spending for the last few years. And it's one of those dividend aristocrats. It increases its dividend every year. So in, it's a safe haven in a storm where we know we're going to get some earnings estimates cuts in an area that they do have growth. If they were going to be flat for the next year or two, I don't think I'd want to still be in there. Why Pepsi over Coca-Cola? I actually like Coke, too. But, but Pepsi I like more at this point because Pepsi also has a lot of uh, packaged goods in there that are actually favorable. That, that, you know, GLP has also taken some wind out of the sales of these stocks. Mm -hmm. But Pepsi's also moved towards more healthier snacks. Weiss, you don't like Pepsi, you say? Yeah, That's look, I would say here. I don't like it when I take a look. I mean, first of all, the growth really has well, accelerated. You, I mean, this, this reads like you don't yeah. like it. No, I'm going well, no, to I'm 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 enlighten our, our viewers on what you told our production team. <laughs> okay. All right. okay. And then we can discuss what you really well, think. All right, let me, let me just read. <laughs> You're paying more for Pepsi than you are for Meta on slower growth. Right. I don't know why people would get excited about it. Exactly right. Now, but growth, that doesn't... <laughs> 
Well, well, hold on. Now, growth has started to accelerate. Okay. If you look at Jimmy's waistline, it's fairly obvious. <laughs> but away from that, as I look at the growth rate of Pepsi versus the growth rate of Meta, just like you say, cheaper stock. Now, when you're running a diverse portfolio like you are, you've got to look for stocks in other sectors, so that's fine. I run a more concentrated portfolio, so I don't have to do it. It's a quality company. It's always going to produce. It's not going to cost you a lot of dough if it goes down. It's not going to make you a lot of dough if it goes up. Okay. That's fine. I mean, you're, you know, you gave our production team your commentary, so I'm and I gonna, by I was going to bring it up. Next time, maybe I'm just loyal don't, to my commentary. Don't give it to All right, Nike named a top pick at Wells. Sentiment inflecting, Jimmy. That's what they say. Yeah. Street it's estimates are above the street. Wow, and they say they see Nike as their most compelling large cap idea. God bless them. Took, off, mean, <laughs> took off Lulu, added Nike. God bless them. I mean, uh, sentiment has inflected. Let's use the proper tense of, of the verb. Uh, it was after the last earnings report where everybody saw what bulls wanted to see. You saw margins improving, inventory getting under control, and China starting to pick up. Stocks up 20% from there. Uh, the momentum is clearly here. 20% in a month kind of makes me a little uncertain about adding to it here, but I'm very happy with the results and I think you let this ride right okay, now. Okay, Surat, I'm giving you the chance to go first on GM because I mean I'm I'm tired of listening to farmer Jim. It's too poetic I'm, about I'm general. I'm tired motors. of having to say it. <laughs> better coming from All right, Sir. well look. I, I really I, thought you were going to. No, no, no. I wanted to go to you first. I mean, I already know what Jimmy thinks. I got red all across my screen today for the most part, except General Motors is is green. It's up two and a half percent. It got upgraded at Mizuho. It's initiated by with a 41. 30 uh, price target at HSBC. So you had the announcement of the huge buyback. What, what's your take here on a stock that's been, let's be honest, really disappointing? Oh, it's been terrible. It's been terrible to And a lot of it is was, what is the uncertainty as to what's going to go on with the unions? What's going to go on with EV? And what is your true window into the next 12 to 18 months? They answered all those by saying, we're buying back shares, Mm -hmm. we're increasing our dividend, we're slowing back our EV, and we're going to produce highly profitable vehicles, and our stock trades at four times earnings. So in the short term, you have a couple of things. You had people who were were just given up saying, hey, I'm going to buy more of the stock. And you probably had some short covering in here, too, where people saying, oh, God, mm-hmm. we thought these guys were, not, you know, that 4P is going to be a 10 PE because the E is going to be so low. Mm-hmm. So I think you give the stock a little, a few days to kind of get back to their mid-30s, and then it's going to be pure execution. And it's going to be, can you deliver on those profits? And if you can, then a 5 or 6 PE that grows 10% a year, you're going to grow 10% at least compared to the rest of the market. I'll let Jimmy pile on positively. Well, just because that I'll, means I'd be remiss. I, I, I thank you. But I'll just I'll add to something that you didn't say, which is that the technicals here, in many regards, really support this. The momentum in the name right now is very strong, respected, and there's reasons behind it. First off, the analyst community is doing what it always does, which is to use, I think you just said, pile on, right? They're piling on. They got the news they wanted from, from the uh, management, and they're piling on with the upgrades and the initiations. The other thing is there is $6.7 billion worth of accelerated share repurchase going on right now for a market cap that's roughly $44 billion. So that's about 15% of the stock uh, outstanding being bought in the market right now. That's going to continue through. That's buying power in addition to normal volume that's going to continue through the rest of this month. All right, let's move and talk about one final stock in our calls of the day. It's U.S. Uh, two stocks, U.S. Bank Corp and Union Pacific. We group them because Bank of America has grouped them too. They've added them to their U.S. one list. Surat, you own U.S. Bank Corp. Talk to me about an area of the market that's been questionable, worrisome, 
um, and some have tried to declare that the bottom is in. Yeah, and I think U.S. government is a little bit different because it's a very large regional. It's almost a mega cap, and it has a lot of other diversified businesses. And I think with rates kind of flatlining coming down, investors are moving back to these stocks because now you, you don't have that huge uncertainty as to when rates rise, why do I want to own bank stocks? Jimmy, UNP. Yeah, Union Pacific. I mean, I have to note that the stock trades around 20 times forward earnings for a long-term growth rate and earnings that's a little bit less than 10. So that peg ratio, going back to what I said about NVIDIA, is not as favorable. What you're playing for here is that those earnings estimates are too low. You're playing for the continued economic recovery from the lagged effects of the Fed, which w- and, and as well for the consumer to shift back to buying goods from services. These things may happen. They may not happen. But we're going to see that in 2024. I think you will see it, by the way. That's why I'm in the stock and the earnings estimates will be revised upwards. All right, good stuff, guys. Let's get the headlines now with Pippa Stevens. Hey, Pippa. Hey, Scott. A former U.S. ambassador to Bolivia was expected to make his first federal court appearance today following his arrest in Miami on Friday. Newly unsealed court documents reveal that Victor Manuel Rocha is being accused of secretly working for the Cuban government for over 40 years. Rocha faces at least three criminal counts, including conspiracy to act as a foreign agent to defraud the U.S. and acting as an illegal agent for a foreign government. The White House is warning Congress it is out of money for Ukraine unless lawmakers take action by the end of the year. Administration officials said today that a lack of funding would, quote, kneecap Ukraine on the battlefield. The plea comes as Congress remains deadlocked on approval of aid to both Israel and Ukraine. And North Dakota Governor Doug Burgum announced that he's suspending his presidential campaign after failing to qualify for the most recent debates. The announcement comes just weeks after Burgum said he would not end his campaign before the New Hampshire GOP primary in January. Scott, back to you. Appreciate it. Thank you, Pippa Stevens. Up next, we've got ETF Edge. Find out what's driving the explosion in popularity for actively managed funds and where you can find the best opportunities right now. We're back after this. What does it mean to be rich? Maybe it's less about reaching a magic number and more about discovering the magic in life. At Edward Jones, our dedicated financial advisors are the people you can count on for financial strategies that help support a life you love. Because the key to being rich is knowing what counts. Learn more about our comprehensive approach to planning at edwardjones.com slash findyourrich. Edward Jones, member SIPC. Welcome back. Let's get to Bob Pisani now with today's ETF Edge. Hey, Bob. The ETF industry is closing out 2023 with inflows into stock and bond funds. The big story, though, this year has been the emergence of actively managed ETFs, which have captured about a quarter of all the flows this year. Why is this happening and will it continue into 2024? Let's talk with Brendan McCarthy. He's the head of ETF distribution and ETF capital markets at Goldman Sachs Asset Management. He manages the newly launched Goldman Sachs S&P 500 core premium income ETF and the NASDAQ 100 core premium income ETF. Both actively managed. They use an options overwrite strategy to generate income by selling call options. Brendan's ETFs historically associated with passive investing, like owning the S&P 500, but that's changing this year. Why is active management, like what you're doing here, sort of having a moment? Yeah, no, it absolutely is having its moment, Bob. And, um, you know, I think it's just the natural evolution of the ETF industry. You know, investors looking for more choice and asset managers such as ourselves providing more tools to help navigate certain markets in certain market conditions. Yeah, you just launched these two actively managed ETFs a few weeks ago. 
caught my attention. One centered on the S&P, the other on the NASDAQ 100, but they both use this overwrite strategy. They generate income and they sell call options. Explain how this works for the viewers. It's a different kind of active management. It is, it is. These are buy right strategies, right? And there's many flavors of buy right strategies, but as the name suggests, there's two components. The buy is you're buying a diversified basket of stocks. In this case, NASDAQ and S&P in each respective product. Then you're the right, which is you're selling calls, right? And that's generating the income, the enhanced income. The, the result here, the outcome here, is that you're forfeiting some of the upside, but for that enhanced income. So the active part of this is you choose which stocks you're going to write these call options on. How do you choose which stocks you're going to write call options so on? Actually, it's not the whole S&P 500. You no, pick what them. we're doing, this is the, the best of active in index investing, right? The underlying components are the index, right? The active overlay, we're writing options on index ETFs, right? So that narrows the basis very specifically and allows us to generate that income. Now, you, you mentioned call writing strategies. They're one of the most popular actively managed strategy. It works great in an environment when the market is sideways or down, because you're selling these, these, uh, these options, but not so much in an up market like we're experiencing now. It, it, how do you explain that to people? I mean, do you believe there's yeah. enough investors willing to buy these products? It, it seems like a very conservative investing philosophy at this point. You're buying protection. To it is, it is. But remember, most people are using these for income. But as it comes to price appreciation in the market, you're absolutely right. Investors should expect higher lows and lower highs. Remember, these are income objective, but they're also lower volatility, right? So to your point, in a negative to flat market, a single digit market, you should expect to, to outperform. But in a, a rising market, an exuberant market, you'll lag. Yeah. We're going to talk a lot about this. This is the hottest trend in ETF investing right now. We're going to have much more coming up on ETF Edge at 1.10 p.m. Eastern Time. You can learn a lot more about what type of active strategies are popular right now, including the one that Brendan's doing. Brendan's going to be joined by Tim Seymour. We all know him. He's the founder and CIO of Seymour Asset Management. He's a research provider for the Amplify International Enhanced Dividend ETF. This is another actively managed strategy. He'll tell us about that. Todd Soane's joining us as well. He's the ETF and technical strategist at Strategus Securities. ETFedge.cnbc.com. Scott, back to you. All right, Bob. Good stuff. Thank you. Bob Pisani. Coming up, hitting headwinds. Alaska Air under big pressure today as it makes a bid for rival Hawaiian Airlines. We do have ownership on the desk, which means... We debate it, and we'll do it next. Welcome back. Shares of Alaska Air sinking after reaching a deal to buy Hawaiian Airlines for $1.9 billion. All right, Jimmy, you own Alaska. I do. I, I don't like this deal. Um, now, I, I think they could have done a lot more damage than they're doing, but I think they're paying too much for this company. Uh, you can see that in the share price increase in Hawaiian Air. Now, here's the thing about Alaska Airline. They've got $2.4 billion of cash and marketable securities on their balance sheet. Maybe that was burning a hole in their pocket. They're going to pay a billion in cash for uh, Hawaiian Airlines. They're going to take out some debt to pay for it as well. But this is not going to kill their balance sheet. It's just I don't understand why you pay this price for a company that's losing money. Now, they're going to get some synergies and probably probably turn that loss into a gain, but this just doesn't seem necessary. It adds complexity in terms of diversifying the fleet, which you don't want. You want either an all Boeing fleet or an all Airbus fleet. Now they've got a mishmash. Um, you know, ultimately, there are good things here. And I want to point out the biggest thing in my eyes, which is that Alaska Airlines, the biggest rub against it, it's all domestic. With Hawaiian Airlines, you actually open up some intrinsic uh, routes to Asia that Hawaiian Airlines has. I like
like that. I, I don't like the deal overall, but the share price reaction is way overdone. By the way, Scott, um, regarding Uber inclusion to the S&P 500, Alaska Airlines is being kicked out to make way for Uber and others. So that's also weighing on the stock today. This is not a price at which you sell. And I do think the demand is clearly there in the airline space. So I'm not inclined to sell, but I don't like the deal. Well, I mean, we're assuming the deal gets done, which, Surat, you're skeptical of to begin with. Yeah. By I the just, way, you own Delta. I own Delta. And just separately, I mean, just seeing all the deals that, you know, our current administration says no to. And this is just another deal in the airline space that is consolidating. You already got, you know, the three majors and now you're going to get another one. And I think they're going to look at it as Christ better. Now, look, if the deal goes through, I think it's better for the airlines because you do get pricing that will improve. So, I mean, irrespective I, of the of the administration saying no to um, a lot of deals have gotten done despite them saying no to. Right. But I just think then you have to go through that process and the, the, the market's already saying no to you on this deal. So I think you're going to get a, a second uh, issue there. Liz? Well, look, I mean, M&A is an indicator at, point, at different points in the cycle. And to Jimmy's point, I don't know enough about the stocks to say whether or not this is an overvalued deal, but you have to try to figure out why they're doing it. I mean, Hawaiian Air was down 52% before this happened, maybe not necessarily being saved, but when you have M&A that's happening for financial reasons to try to prop a company up, that's not a good indication. When you have M&A that's just for activity and you've got prices that are a little overinflated, that might be different. But I think this is a point in the cycle where M&A is going to tell us a lot about how industries are doing. People who've been in the markets for a long time remember that 20 years ago, airlines made mistakes in terms of overexpanding and doing too much M&A. And that's where you had all those empty seats on planes. Um, that stopped around 15 years ago when you had like Northwestern being bought by Delta, Continental being bought by United. It was rationalized. This deal doesn't quite seem rational to me, and it, and it, and it bothers me. This feels a little bit more like empire building. Why? Which, Look, I'd say the market's saying the deal's going to get done because look at where Hawaiian Airlines is. So I think anytime you're paying that kind of premium for a non-biotech company, you paid too much, to your point. So, look, the administration has said not no to some deals, no to every deal, which, is, which buttresses your skepticism, right. but yet when they've been challenged in court. But the point is it could be an overhang for a couple of years. So why go there? All right, Mike Santoli with his midday word right after this break. Now, our senior markets commentator, Mike Santoli, joins us now with his midday word. And you've been writing, Michael, about the setup being more favorable. I would say more favorable than it was the last time we were at these levels in the S&P in late July. Uh, back then, I think there were a lot of things stacked up that seemed like it was going to present a challenge. Said it at the time, uh, both because of investor positioning and sentiment got overexcited. The belief in the soft landing scenario became kind of overwhelming and left room for disappointment. But also, you had the seasonal effects. We obviously hit that yield uh, shock as well. Uh, and then the final push from, the, from geopolitics, it sort of turned what should have been like a three to five percent pullback into something deeper now better seasonals now earnings estimates are higher at least 2024 looking like uh, kind of tilted in the right direction uh, yields have clearly i mean at least pretty clearly for the moment peaked although they're leaking higher today finally you're also seeing as you guys have been talking about it's more rotating than retreating so every excuse to pull back the, the market's definitely overbought but instead of wholesale selling you're just seeing reallocation from the winners uh, into the laggard. So as long as that lasts, I think we're, we're okay. I'm also not really so sure that the Fed is going to be intent 
on tightening financial conditions through jawboning. Uh, as you guys were talking about before, I feel like as long as inflation is going in the right direction, they don't necessarily care about the first and second derivatives of what they think maybe causes inflation down the road, which is looser financial conditions. Sure, but I, I do wonder, because I think it's going to be a very interesting next 10 days, culminating in the Wednesday Fed decision, which we don't expect a decision, but the, um, the news conference, and whether the chair himself is asked, which he probably will be, um, or outright talks about what Waller suggested sure. and pushes back on that in, in any way, which the market could take as being more hawkish. We'll have to wait and see, obviously. Yeah, no doubt about it. And we're going to get the, you know, the committee's outlook, right? It's one of those meetings where you're going to have their outlook. They're giving themselves a lot of time to get to 2% on the target. Um, inflation's down more than they thought it would be at this point based on the September uh, projections. So it seems as if they feel like they have room for, for things to just kind of develop from here while they don't do much of anything. I don't think anybody should come out and endorse 120 basis points of rate cuts, which is what's in the Fed funds futures curve right now. But that also doesn't matter because you're not supposed to start for four months. I don't really think that's in the stock market, that expectation. Yeah, good stuff. All right, I'll see you in a couple hours on Closing Bell. That's Mike Santoli, our senior markets commentator. We'll do final trades next. Got a big Closing Bell coming up today, 3 o'clock Eastern time. That man right there, Rick Reeder of BlackRock, the CIO of Global Fixed Income, is going to join us. On Closing Bell, we'll talk about the markets, his look ahead for 2024, what he thinks the Fed is likely to do when the first cuts could come, the whole thing. We'll do it then. Also, Dan Greenhouse joining, Nicole Webb, Eric Jackson as well. Hope you'll join me then. Let's do final trades. Steve Weiss, start us off. I'm going, uh, I'm staying in character. I'm going to stay with uh, one-year treasuries. Just over 5% yield. You can sit and wait it out. Uh, I've got enough bait in my portfolio already. I thought you were going to have something like Dracula related. You said you're going to stay in character. I was like, no, I'm a big supporter of the U.S. What could that possibly be? Are you recommending garlic? Like, what do you? I'm a big supporter of the U.S. government, Scott. So I'm staying in character. Okay. All right. Jim Labenthal. That was pretty funny, by the way. But uh, CVS, they've got analyst day tomorrow coming up. Usually these are positive catalysts. I think so tomorrow. Surat Sethi. Morgan Stanley, I think capital markets activity picking up. This is what the stock needed. Wealth management's doing fine. You need capital markets to wake up. Okay. So you like the uh, the financials too. All right, Liz Young. Food and beverages. It's the holiday season. Eat, drink, and be merry. Consumer staples have been a laggard, so if you want to play that rotation play, the laggingest laggard has been the food, beverage, and tobacco <laughs> section of that sector. All righty. Thanks, everybody. You've been listening to CNBC's Halftime Report, the podcast. You can always catch us live weekdays at 12 Eastern, only on CNBC. All opinions expressed by the Halftime Report participants are solely their opinions and do not reflect the opinions of CNBC, NBC Universal, their parent company or affiliates, and may have been previously disseminated by them on television, radio, internet, or another medium. You should not treat any opinion expressed on this podcast as a specific inducement to make a particular investment or follow a particular strategy, but only as an expression of an opinion. Such opinions are based upon information the Halftime Report participants consider reliable, but neither CNBC nor its affiliates and or subsidiaries warrant its completeness or accuracy, and it should not be relied upon as such. To view the full Halftime Report Disclaimer, please visit cnbc.com forward slash Halftime Report Disclaimer. 
From their innovative practice facility to unmatched views from the fairway, the PGA of America is helping lower scores and elevate fan experiences with 5G solutions from T-Mobile for Business. Together, we're using AI-powered analytics to expand coaching tools and bringing fans closer to the pros with 5G-connected cameras. This is game-changing innovation. This is the PGA of America with T-Mobile for Business. Take your business further at T-Mobile.com slash now. 